Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by Sukup Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. Thanks for joining us on Impactability today. I've dubbed today's episode the most amazing feel-good fundraising story ever. And before you start prejudging what this is going to be all about, I promise you, this is just a feel-good story. Let me set the scenario. It's a story of a nonprofit that's been in existence for over 100 years. Everything's going well, but they decided that to better serve their community, they wanted to ramp up more. They wanted to do more. That's what I'm talking about when I say feel good. Our guest today is going to tell us the story of this organization and how they got the team together to tackle fundraising in a host of ways. So do you hire fundraisers to start that process? Do you get some of the current staff to add it to their list of duties? Do you do both? What else do you do? And in the end, how did things turn out? By the end of the podcast today, you're going to want to see the movie. It's, <laughs> it's such a feel-good story. Becca Zivovitz is our guest today. She's the Director of Donor Services for Orthodox Union, a religious organization that supports the Orthodox Jewish community around the world through Jewish teen outreach, kosher food certification, Orthodox synagogues, many, many community outreach programs. She's joining us from her office in New York. So, Becca, I can't wait to have you share this story with our listeners. Welcome to Impactability. Thanks so much. Very excited to be here. Excellent to have you. So, the other day when we were first speaking, I didn't want to get off the phone. Literally, I was I was so fascinated with your story. I mean, there's a lot of pieces. Let's first start with a description of Orthodox Union, when it was founded and why and for so many years and all of that good stuff. Give us give us the background. Sure. Uh, the Orthodox Union was founded in the late 1800s. We were a conglomeration of synagogues. Early on, it was determined that one of the things that was needed by the Orthodox Jewish community was it's called a hecture which is a certification that something is kosher. So if you ever go to the store and you see a little U with an O around it, kind of looks like a registered trademark, but it's a U instead of an R, that's us, the Orthodox Union. And that means that your food is kosher. We certify about 70% of the products in the world that are kosher. And we, we cover products that come from about 60, 60 different countries around the world. In addition to that, we serve the Jewish community. So we have programs for teens, we have programs on college campuses, we have programs for individuals with disabilities, we have programs that go to Israel, we have programs that serve people in Israel, we have programs that uh, support Jewish learning, and on and on and on. So Becca, this isn't just a New York thing where your office is, this is national, international, what's, what's the story? So we have offices uh, across the U.S., Canada and Israel. Uh, and, and like I said, we, we certify products in plants across 60 different countries. That is absolutely amazing. I'm just thinking of the scope of certification. That's some serious work. Yeah. <laughs> so things have been going well for years, obviously. And all of your hard work providing the community with all of the amazing services that you provide, the programs that you offer, et cetera, et cetera. 
Talk about the impact and the success of your work in the community, with, with the social services especially, and the success that you've been seeing. We do really so much, and it's so varied. You know, I can talk about TAR programs. I can talk about people with disabilities. I can talk about teens across the country where we we help teens who really have no connection to Judaism to connect with their Judaism. We started in the eight in the 80s, working with the Orthodox community to identify opportunities for people with disabilities, especially developmental disabilities, to take their rightful place of the community. That's something that, you know, for the most part, people were living in institutions and there, there was no place for them in the Jewish community. And so we started on both ends, helping people with disabilities to have the social skills to come and take their place and helping the community to welcome them. On college campuses, if you're not going to to a Jewish school, it can be hard to be an Orthodox Jew in a, in a, in a school. So providing rabbis and rebbitsons on campus, study opportunities, opportunities to be Jewish on campus, you know, taking kids to Israel as part of Birthright. What a lot of people don't know is Birthright gives the money. They don't run the trip. We're one of the biggest provider of Birthright trips. Wow, I did not know that. It, it's to me as I'm listening to you, it's almost like you have several nonprofits within what you're doing because I, all of the things that you're listening, I'm thinking of a nonprofit that I know of that does that and one that does that and one that does that, and you're doing all of this. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's all, almost you can think of us like a like a United Way, right? We're kind of this umbrella organization that has all these many nonprofits. And we'll talk about this later that has kind of fueled what at the beginning of the story that we're going to talk about caused some of the problems where we had all these different shops popping up and different people were going to the same donor. And we had the situation where the donor would say, why are you coming to me five different times in one week? And our programs would say, but we're different organizations. We're different programs. And the donor would say, no, you're not. You're all under the same 501c3 number. You're all the OU. And there was almost this disconnect where we would, especially with grants, we'd put in five applications and they would say one application per 501c3 number. But we're different organizations. Don't we get different applications? And there was this disconnect between how we saw ourselves and how the donor saw us. And we had to reconcile that. So in my book, though, it sounds that everything is is just like it's a well-oiled machine and a lot of a lot of work going into a lot of different programs. Where did the idea of let's do something more in terms of our fundraising, where did that, how did that all come about? We had a certain amount of money and we had a certain amount of what we could do. And in a lot of different places, we were making a big impact. Each region, each program in each region wanted to grow. And we said, you know, we... You know, we're, we're, we're serving this many kids in this region and we could be serving X plus, you know, we're serving this many synagogues. We could be serving this many more. We're serving this many seniors. We could be serving this many more. And to do that, you need money. And so we started, so this decision was made by leadership. If you want to grow, you got to raise it. And so what would happen is that they brought in, they brought in a couple of people who actually had a fundraising background. But what they did was they said to the people in the regions and in the, in the programs, if you want to expand your program and we think it's great and we want you to, you got to raise the money. We're bringing in the support. We're bringing in this help and they're going to walk you through it and we're going to start you slow, but you have to raise the money. 
We're going to come back to the discussion on donor response in a little bit because I think there's a lot more to discuss, and I love this. We're speaking with Becca Zibovitz about the change in landscape at her organization, actually an increase of of everything. They're doing so much, they want to do so much more. And for every nonprofit listening to our program, you know as well as I do, you want to do more, it's going to cost more. You need more. So fundraising is key here. So we're going to take a quick break here. But when we come back, we're going to get into more of how things transpired, how things began to change in terms of their fundraising culture within their nonprofit. This is such a good story. We've just scratched the surface. We'll be right back. This is Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Sometimes there's just not enough hours in the day to get the work at your nonprofit done. Sukup Strategic Solutions can help. We handle all kinds of projects, especially the ones you can't seem to get to. Fundraising, marketing, grant writing, communications, and more. With Sukup Strategic Solutions, you'll have a team of nonprofit professionals working for you. You'll have more hands on deck, reduce overhead, and increase efficiency. For a free consultation on how we can help lighten the load at your nonprofit, visit SukupStrategicSolutions.com. Maximize your impact with Sukup Strategic Solutions. Welcome back to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Today we're speaking with our guest, Becca Zibovitz, about the Orthodox Union, about how they turned to fundraising to continue the amazing work, how they increased all of their fundraising efforts, and the changes that they had to go through, some of the hardships, some of the easy days. And we're going to talk about the thank you day in just a minute. You'll find out what that's all about. But first, let's get back into it. So, There comes that day, okay, everybody, we're going to fundraise. We're going to get serious. We're going to really fundraise. How did that all go down, and what was the response from the staff? The leadership went to the different regions and the different different programs and said, you know, you're really great at running programs. We want to expand your program. To do that, we need you to fundraise. It's now part of your job. Um, We're not going to put you on your own. We are going to support you and we're going to bring in somebody to help you. And we're going to run a couple of seminars and we're going to start you slow with a small goal, but it's now part of your job. Having now talked to a lot of those people and having been around at the time and talking to some people that I knew, what the program people heard was the EU has decided that everyone is now going to commute on a unicycle. Bob in accounting has written one before. He's going to make a YouTube video. Everyone is expected to be proficient by Friday. And it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. Uh, (laughs) People just froze. A lot of them were social workers. A lot of them were rabbis, educators. What did they know from fundraising? So they had brought in somebody uh, who started a month before me. And I remember he was going to cover a lot of different things. And he was going to teach us how to fundraise. He came to a conference, a staff conference, and he's talking to us about fundraising. And, you know, he's an amazing guy. And he actually ended up being one of my, probably my first mentor in in fundraising. But at the time, he was the guy in the suit who was coming down teaching us how to fundraise. And he's talking about how Rosh Hashanah, the the Jewish New Year is coming up. And he says, so this is a really good time to reach out to your donors, your big donors. Wish them a a happy Rosh Hashanah, happy New Year. And I remember at the time I was the administrative assistant and it was my job to send out what we called the donor notifications. Someone makes a, a donation in honor of somebody, in memory of somebody, they get a card. It says, you should know that somebody made an, a donation in honor of you. You know, it's very generous. This is what we do. Okay. 
So I raised my hand. I'm, 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 I'm into this. You know, the people who buy lots of cards, I should reach out to them. And and he kind of looks at me and he says, well, how, how much do we charge for cards? I said, $2. He goes, $2? <laughs> he decided that he was going to teach our staff about the culture of philanthropy, but he didn't want to scare anyone. So he scheduled a thank you day. As a Jewish organization, we are open on Christmas. So what are you going to do on Christmas? There's only, I mean, if you've ever been out on Christmas, you have your own subway car. So what are we going to do? All the Jews are home. We're going to call them. We're not going to call them and, and ask them for anything. That would be very scary to a staff who's never really fundraised before. We're going to call them and thank them. So we're going to order Chinese food and we're going to give everyone a bunch of calling cards and we're going to call and say, thank you. No one was supposed to ask for money. No one was supposed to solicit anybody. That's it. We had staff members who took vacation days because it was mandatory. That's how adverse some of our staff was to fundraising. Fast forward a few years, we now do annual giving days. And even the people who one of my colleagues put, she'd rather chew up her arm than fundraise, have found ways to participate. She's not necessarily the one who is making the phone call, but she's running the social media. Or she is making, she's the one ringing the bell when we get a yes. Or, you know, everyone has found a way to participate and it's really an electric day. And it's been such a culture change. I wanted to talk to you about that culture change because I, I think that's something that everyone can kind of learn from. With this new mindset, how did you create that new culture? You know, it, it really was the leadership of the time who, who really set the culture. And they, they did a really great job. They made it part of the norm. It became part of every conversation. It became part of every conference. There was something on development. There was something on fundraising. There were conversations, you don't have to fundraise, just know when to call me. It became awareness, awareness that this was happening. And, and it was training. In some cases, you know, I, I, we had two social workers, both of which headed different regions, both of which had zero interest in fundraising. One will tell you she went into it kicking and screaming, tried it, actually ended up loving it. It's one of our better fundraisers. Another one basically said, I'm a social worker. I have no interest in this. And she left. Now, at this point, you know, I'll use Yachad as the example because having worked in that department, I know it the best. Yachad has gotten to the point where they've realized that programmers are not necessarily fundraisers and fundraisers are not necessarily programmers. After going through a couple iterations of hiring a fundraiser to run the region or a programmer to run the region and do both, there are a few people who can do both, not so many. They've gotten to the point where they now have a programmer and a fundraiser in most of their regions because mm -hmm. they recognize that they're two different professions and they really need someone focused on each. That's great. I love to hear that because that was part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation. I think the underlying story there is you never know who on your staff could be a great fundraiser if given A, the opportunity and B, the tools. I, I absolutely agree. Given the opportunity and the tools. And I think that that's something that, that we experienced, that we said, you know, we, here's one person who's going to support 15 people. And that's unreasonable. You know, if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to ask your staff to fundraise and you're going to ask them to step out of their comfort zone, you need to support them. 
And you need to either provide them with professional training, or you need to have a one-on-one mentor who's going to work with them in an intense way. You're going to send them to some kind of boot camp. There's got to be some real hands-on, ongoing training because it is its own profession. And you wouldn't say to someone, oh, you're a fundraiser. By the way, we need you to be a social worker. We're going to check in with you once a week and give you some clinical training. Why would you do it for fundraising? Good point. Yeah, I agree with you. You need to kind of invest in your people sometimes. And going back to the example I just gave about the social worker, there are some people who are empathetic. They'll be great at it. But had you given them the tools, they'd be amazing. Do I think that had we given them the proper training that we're trying to work on right now, actually a lot of our people are going through the Lilly School um, and getting a certificate as we speak. Do I think that at the end of that, that they're going to be better equipped? Yeah, I do. Do I think that that's going to have implications on how they fundraise? That they're going to understand the vehicles better, that they're going to understand the ethics better, that they're going to understand the research better. I really do. We talked about this earlier. I want to get back to the reaction of your donors when they've got several people. As you mentioned, you've got all of these different programs that you offer. So you might have different fundraisers coming at them for different reasons. You're all trying to raise money for those services and programs, etc. So how do you get them to understand that you're not raising funds for this, you're raising funds for this? And what, what is the reaction of the donors? Are they getting it? They get it. They get it. You know, I think that because the OU does so much, we've actually stayed away from fundraising for the OU and we fundraise for the programs. So... You know, my ask isn't, in most cases, support the OU. My ask is support Yafet, support NCSY, support JLIC, support Birthright, support Torah initiatives, support women's initiatives, and we'll describe what it is. Now, a lot of the sophisticated donors understand that those things are connected, but they also understand that each one of those things has its own goals and it's what it's doing. Is it competitive? Like you've got one fundraiser going for this program, another fundraiser going for that program to the same donor. Are they kind of like competing against each other? Is there any is there any animosity there or do they they pretty much everyone kind of works in sync? So that's something we're working on, because like I said, you know, the, the way this started was, you know, kind of each department built its own shop. You had these department directors who were assigned to help each region, each person, and they were overseeing their 5, 10, 15 people. And it wasn't until later that they really built out a structure to oversee everybody and started to kind of coordinate between those department directors. So there was some competition, and we're starting to try to break that down a little bit. I would think the success would be that if I'm fundraising for A and you're fundraising for B and the donor cares about A and B, then they should be able to feel good about making a gift to both A and B. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. And we've gotten mostly to that point um, where we have relationship managers and we try to work together. What I think we haven't gotten to yet is completely listening to the donor, where if I'm fundraiser A and I am talking to you as the donor and you say to me, 
yeah, I'm interested in A, but I love B. I'm not going to B and saying, hey, you need to come talk to, to Dona because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my guest. There's still a little bit of that, which I think we need to get past. I think we, we really need to, to be more donor driven, but I think we've made immense strides from where we started. And I think we're only going to make more. When we first spoke, I said that this needs to be a movie. It's such a feel good story and, and it's a work in progress, obviously. So my question, my final question to you, Becca, is who's going to play the role of Becca Zibovitz? <laughs> no one, I hope. <laughs> Oh, this is great. Becca, I got to thank you for sharing this story with us today on Impactability. I think it's outstanding. I wish you continued success. I know you're on the right track and you're doing so many great things for the Jewish community. Thank you. We wish you and the OU continued success. And thank you for being on Impactability today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Once again, the sound of the horn means it is time for Coach's Corner, where we take the questions that you send us and we ask our impact coaches for their advice, their answers. What can they do to answer the question and give you some advice in the process? And today's question, another one that I've heard several times, and this way we're going to get a great answer to the question. Deborah Haley is our impact coach. Deborah, I know you've heard this one before. I've heard it before, but now we have you to give us the definitive answer. <laughs> no pressure, but here is the question. Listen closely. I have been asked to join a board of directors for a local nonprofit. I don't know much about the organization other than I'm passionate about their cause and I think I can help. What are some questions that I should ask and red flags I should look for before I decide to join? Deborah, as always, on Coach's Corner, you have five minutes to answer the question, and your five minutes begins right now. All right, let's go. Well, this is a really good question to delve into, and it's great for people that are considering joining a board, not to just do it because they're passionate, but to understand the organization and what it needs and how they can specifically help the first thing that I would do would be to ask about board guidelines. What are the expectations from board members? And then I would ask to meet with the chairperson and see how that conversation goes. Is there a good fit between the potentially new member and the board chair and to attend a board meeting and to see that interaction and to see if the person is interested in being a part of that organization. So much of the dynamics and culture of that nonprofit can really be seen in the board meetings. Um, beyond that, the person should be looking at um, what the bylaws are, ask for a copy of the bylaws. And you can see and need to know about the finances with the financial statements and the financial policies and procedures document. And that one is just critical in terms of understanding where the nonprofit is. And that can be an indication of your first red flag, that being there's a deficit possibly, or there's an issue with their audit. You can ask for that as well, but um, the audit will show that there could be possible problems with the financials for the organization. And one other thing would be the, the red flags coming from grants. Have they been renewed year over year? That is a very positive indication that the organization has a strong relationship with their funding agencies. And if they're not being renewed, 
that's a red flag that says, hmm, there's something up here that the organization is not performing and um, the funding agencies have taken note. That is probably the, the big ones on in terms of red flags. But the other thing I would do is to go to know more about the organization and see what's happening on their social media. Go to GuideStar Candid and uh, see what they've got loaded there as information and on social media and their website. And you should be hearing a lot of the same message across all of those sites. And if you're seeing differences that are significant or concerning, take note and follow up on those. I hope that helps the person that's considering board membership. It's a tremendous responsibility. It's a very rewarding responsibility, but it does come with the board member giving of themselves, their experience, their expertise, their network, their help with fundraising. So it's not a decision that's made casually, and it's not one that should just be made on your passion for an organization, but after an in-depth look at what that organization is all about. I totally agree. Fantastic points all around, Deborah. Thank you so much for being our impact coach today on Impactability. You got it. If you've got a question for Coach's Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and that way you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Joe Turner. Thanks for listening, and thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.